it's the worst part of YouTube is that whole internal meta YouTube drama bullshit. And he's the king of the fucking castle. And it's a castle made of shit. The new show eight. I'm Joe. I'm Alan. And I'm Dan. And we're back. And we've got some questions for you as usual. You can send us those questions either on Twitter at ask new show or via email show at the new dot show. And do let us know if you want to remain anonymous, otherwise we might read your name out. If you want to support creation of these episodes, you can do so on Patreon, patreon.com slash asknewshow. And thank you everyone who is supporting us there. Much appreciated. So the first question then, what characters should be allowed in a file name? All of them. Emojis, (laughs) blank spaces, underscores, full stops, percent signs, hashes, pound signs, the lot. Everything should be allowed in a file name. It should, there should be no technical limitation to the name of a file. I should be able to call it absolutely anything I want. Is this from like the perspective of how you name your own files or like what should a given person be able to do? I think it should not be exposed to the user a technical limitation of the file system on which files are being stored. Like if I want to call a document smiley face and I want to call another document crying face because those are valid things I can type with my keyboard. Uh, why, why should you stop me doing that? Because your antiquated crappy file system on Linux doesn't allow that. You know, that, that seems something from the past. It should be ab- the, the file system should be abstracted away from me, the human as far as possible that I could just type any old thing in a box where it says, what do you want to call this thing? And I just type it in and press enter and it goes, okay. And then under the covers, some bullshit happens and that thing gets stored on disk. I don't care what that bullshit is. I don't care how it happens. Just do it. Does extension four not support just whatever Unicode you throw at it? Are there, I've never even tried this, but like, is that a real limitation that we have currently? Yeah, there are certain characters you certainly it's certainly difficult and prog- problematic to use in file names for sure. Um, and you know, you have to jump through hoops and escape things and stuff like that, which users shouldn't have to deal with. Well, I've never even thought to try this before, but as you were typing, I thought I'll give this a go. And so I copied an emoji, made a text file and called it that emoji. I think it was the, the crying face emoji dot text. And hey, it worked. No problem. Brilliant. What operating system? Uh, it's Ubuntu 18.04. Okay, yeah. Then, then I guess it works. Yeah, and that's on an ext4. But you, you personally, would you, would you personally name your files like this, or like how do you name your files? Because I agree, like it does, like people should be able to name it whatever they want. But I think that's a less interesting question. So, if I save a document in Google Docs, in the top left-hand corner, there's a field where you can type the name. Hmm. I don't recall ever being told that there's characters I can't put in there. And as a user, what I'm saving is a document and I want to give the document a name that is meaningful to me. I don't care how that gets stored inside the computer or how that gets stored on a disk or whatever. That's, that's irrelevant to me. I just want to be able to say, this is smiley face UK flag. And that's what that document is called, because that is meaningful to me at that time. I get that theoretically you want the ability to do that, but I'm asking in practice, do you name files like that? How do you actually name files in practice? 
No, because internally I have a blocker because I know that there are limitations in the tools that I'm using. And I think having a legacy of knowing that there are limitations means I, when I try and save something, I automatically try and work around those things. And it may be that, yeah, sure, some of these characters may be possible, but because I've been around a long time and I know I've, I've lived through MS-DOS, 8.3 characters and you know the when windows 95 came along and they had long file name support but it was like six and then a tilde and then a one and then dot three characters which just look like garbage on the file system when you look at it but inside the graphical file manager it looked right and that's that's what i want is in inside the applications i want the file name to just look right i don't care what it does underneath and because of i happen to know these limitations i think mentally i block myself from doing stupid stuff like smileyface.txt what if you wanted to create a text file that had loads of happy memories in it but also loads of sad memories in it and so you wanted to call it smiley face slash sad face you wouldn't be allowed to do that would you i don't know i haven't tried it i i think i think i should be allowed to do that for sure but that would break stuff you can't put a slash in a file name well that's my point is i i shouldn't have to care about arbitrary file system semantics when i'm typing the name of a document when i'm when i'm saving a document in google docs i don't care about how it's stored because i'm looking at a web page and the file system on which this document is stored is abstracted a thousand levels away from me, so I don't care. But because when I'm sat on my computer and I'm in LibreOffice and it asks me for a file name and I hit save, I know that under the covers there's an EXT file system and there's, uh, you know, a GNOME file chooser picker thing. And I know one of them is going to bitch at me if I put a slash in it. I don't put a slash in it. And so I self-censor myself when I'm making file names. So I, I, I don't do what I would like to be able to do for fear of it failing. And I don't want to every time put a slash in the file name and they go, oh God, this again. So I don't bother. I just like leave those characters out. Yeah, that's interesting. You can't, you can't put a slash. I don't see why you shouldn't be able to. The actual file name could be something different that could be escaped somehow, right? I personally am super boring. Like I just, I use numbers and letters and dashes and sometimes underscores. I think mostly just dashes, though. Yeah, dashes for me, never underscores. I hate when people send me flax with underscores in them. It just annoys me. Thanks, I'll add that to the list. Ah, uh, but nothing, nothing annoys me more than spaces in file names. Huh. See, spaces are the thing that, yeah, I previously used to get knocked about, but actually I, it, the readability in a graphical file manager when you're scrolling through and you just see English phrases for, you know, holiday spreadsheet with a space in between those two words or a booking form for flight to Israel. You know, the, these are, these are just sentences that accurately describe the content of that document. And, and I want to be able to scroll through and pick out the file without having kludgy things like dashes and underscores in between words or using camel case or something stupid like that just to work around some bullshit file system limitation. Yeah, that does seem weird. I, You know, I think uh, I'm going to start just doing spaces and normal capitalization and stuff and see if I run into trouble, see who I piss off. Don't even get me started on capital letters, man. 
I'm just going to, I'm going to go for it. I'm just going to name files, whatever I want to name them and then see what breaks. So the big one is when you somehow end up with a file name called dash in your directory. And then you're trying to figure out at the command line, how do I remove this thing? Cause like RM, if I do RM and then dash, it thinks that that's a parameter. And yeah, there are ways you can do this. And I've seen lengthy discussions from people about, oh, on my Linux desktop, it's really impossible. I've created this file and I can't delete it. And it's like, well, just open the graphical file manager, click on it and press the delete key on your keyboard. That'll do it. No, just stick it in quotes. That'll do it, wouldn't it? Right. But the fact that you've got this wonderful graphical tool that allows you to navigate the entire world of the file system on your computer, yet you're brute forcing deleting a file using archaic command line tools when you could just click it with the mouse that you have in your hand and press the delete button or just drag it into a trash can or whatever method your desktop has just use the graphical tools because they work everybody knows that gui tools aren't powerful enough to use your computer with though come on (laughs) if you get into the habit of always using the command line for everything then no matter what system you're on it's always going to be the same how often are you on some other system fairly frequently SSH'd into a system that I have no mouse. Well, that's, you're weird. (laughs) Well, I think I'm just a different user to you. You are all about the desktop, whereas I have headless boxes. I think there's a clear delineation between types of users there, and the vast majority of people don't do what you're describing. Oh, yeah. And so what what I'm trying to get at is for the average Joe, huh? uh, they're more likely to have a graphical file manager in which they can click on things and delete them. And that seems reasonable. And when writing documentation, we should err on the side of the millions, nay billions of people who use a computer like a normal person and not the Joes of this world. Don't get me started on writing documentation for the terminal. I don't even want to go there. But it's much easier to write documentation for terminal-based stuff because you don't have to take into account different GUIs. Easier for who, Joe? Well, if <laughs> if you are running a distro that has a specific um, paradigm and experience that is not particularly configurable, then yeah, it totally makes sense to not write it for the terminal and to do it for the GUI. But if you are an application maker who, you know, author or whatever, who who distributes it, via loads of different methods on loads of different distros and people be using different um, desktop environments and all the rest of it, then it's surely easier to just write terminal documentation. Depends on the target audience. Yeah. And this is an entire other question than what file names, what file names should contain on the file system, I think. What's the tipping point where you would fork a project? And this is from Corey. Do you mean fork in the sense of like, with the intention not to merge it back into uh, master or main or trunk or whatever you're calling it? I would assume so, yeah. I would say for me then that if you're really like, you're going to fork something and now it's its own new whole thing, at that point there would have to be some kind of major vision difference between where you think this thing should go and where other people should think it should go. Like in the past, um, we have at elementary had some things, um, I guess a, a couple of different ways that we've, we've ended up forking things is one, like the original maintainers, uh, disappear. 
and so if we have to fork a project that's not been maintained so that now we can maintain it. Or um, when we first started uh, implementing more strict rules around like code review and code style and stuff like that, we had some um, people who were like, hey, you know what? This is just something I do for fun. Like, I don't really want to have to go through a review process. So we said, okay, you know, that's fine. Um, then we're going to fork it and our version will, you know, follow our contribution guidelines. And, you know, you can hold on to the name for your project because you want it just as like a fun thing. Yeah, I think there's historically lots of reasons why things fork whether it's uh change in ownership change in direction uh the current maintainer or maintainers are being dickheads and you want to work around them um there's there's a lot of what you might think are legitimate reasons to fork things but also forking shouldn't necessarily be seen as a bad thing um i've i've forked things before and kept those things that I've forked private, modified them and just kept them private because it's not been something that I think anyone particularly cares about. And I know the upstream projects aren't going to accept the changes I've made because they're slapdash hacky things. And that's the nature of open source. You can take something, fork it and screw around with it as much as you like. It's fine. And and I've got forks of stuff on various places as like Tarball somewhere or on GitHub or something. And I don't think it's a problem. I don't think forks should always be seen in the negative light. You can, you can see a fork as a good thing as well as a bad thing. I've always considered a fork to be a last resort though, but you're trying to argue against that then. Well, given every project on GitHub has a fork button, like there's actually a button there that says fork this project and people put banners on the top of their project homepages that say fork this on GitHub and it, it's encouraged. Now, yeah, okay, the motivation might be, well, you could fork this, work on it and then contribute your changes back. But you go looking at any significant project on GitHub and look at the way that the project diverges and how there are lots of branches in other people's project you know repositories it's fine forking a thing is not always a bad thing sure if it's a big major infrastructural thing like xorg or system d or you know something really significant which there really needs to only be one of them um then it can be frustrating you know look at the trouble that's going on at the moment with LibreOffice trying to get um, a viable business model, yet OpenOffice still has a ridiculous mindshare. So, you know, it can be problematic to have a fork, but I don't think that's always the case. I think it's perfectly fine to fork projects. And the net result might be a good thing for both the upstream project and for the new project. It's not always negative. Yeah, I guess with regards to the GitHub thing, that's why I asked the clarifying questions. I feel like, at least from my perspective, the way that I interpret that is you have to fork it because you don't have permissions. You don't have write permissions on that repository. So it's just kind of a technical, like technically you're forking it, but I think the intention is to make a pull request eventually. Yeah, it certainly does encourage you to do that, but equally you could download it and you know make your changes locally. You don't have to do the GitHub way. And and sure, I I appreciate that it's it's 
part of the development flow for you to fork something, um, you know, make a change, whether it's just a typo you're fixing and then you contribute that back and you've, you know, you've done your part contributing to that project. But it's also possible to fork something and then take that open source project if it's, you know, under a permissive license and do whatever the hell you want to it. It's, that's the nature of open source licensing. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't say that forking is inherently a bad thing. Um, I, I would say that I don't know if there's people that make the time investment to contribute back to upstreams as much as they probably should. It's probably more in people's interest. If, if, if you're just doing something like personally, I could see why that would feel like a waste of your time. But if you have any in sort of intention to redistribute your fork, then I feel like that it's probably worth your time to at least put the changes in front of the maintainers and see what they think about it. And, you know, whether or not they want to accept it, like they probably still have some thoughts about like how to make sure it's good, you know? Yeah. And there's certainly been plenty of occasions where people have forked projects because they've tried to push their changes upstream and the upstream maintainer rejects them for whatever reason, whether it's technical or political or license reasons or you know it doesn't fit with their vision for the project sure that can happen and and at, at that point it's sad that you end up with basically two entirely separate communities working on two entirely separate projects but sometimes those things you know remerge later on down the line maybe that's helpful maybe the the forked project accelerates development for a while while there's a focus and all the eyeballs are on that new project. And then later down the line, once it's stabilized, maybe the upstream accepts the changes. You look at what's happened with OpenWRT and the lead project and how those things forked and then got remerged back together again. Um, maybe in the future, the OpenOffice and LibreOffice people will remerge back together. Maybe the people who made DOSBox and the recent DOSBox remastered or whatever it's called. Maybe they'll, you know, see the light in the future and remerge. Who knows? Yeah, Glimpse is uh, one of the more recent examples of that where you've basically got two very similar projects and they just happen to clash about the name of it. So hopefully at some point they will come round on that and the, the efforts will come back together again. But it, it, that's the thing, the duplication of effort when you have that situation just doesn't seem like a good thing to me. But I suppose with the uh, OpenWRT thing, that kind of proves that it can work out. I'm not entirely sure there is always duplication of effort because some people will be working on things that they just would not have worked on upstream. And so is there really duplication there? Sure, there's, there's CI systems that are building GIMP and CI systems that are building Glimpse. And you could argue there's duplication there, like rebuilding these binaries constantly. But I think that's a small price to pay. It's more the human time wasted. And someone who's working on Glimpse who would not have worked on GIMP because of the naming, then there isn't duplication because they're just, they just wouldn't have done that thing. I don't know that that's always necessarily true. I know we have downstreams that um, we would really like to have some of the things that they're working on upstream if they would, you know, take the time to go through the code review process. But um, that's just something that it seems like they're not willing to do. And that's kind of unfortunate. And it can often be really hard to try to go fish those changes out and merge them upstream yourselves. It's not as good of a process, I think. 
But time is a great healer. I watched with interest a thread on everyone's favorite website, twitter.com, uh, recently. And one of the, the people who had been accused of doing something, you know, wrong, shall we say, uh, admitted to, oh, I was, I was a young student. And this was only like two years ago. They did this thing. And they said, Oh, I was a young student trying to find ways to avoid doing my, you know, my science homework or something. And, you know, they realized in hindsight that maybe their actions were bad and maybe they should, you know, go through that code review and maybe they should, um, fix whatever it is they did two years ago. And I think, um, it's very difficult to have everyone on the same page when you've got everyone with different motivations, different personal circumstances, different amounts of free time. You can't just force everyone to adhere to your coding standards and force everyone to merge their changes back in because they've got different motivations. They're different human beings with different lives. And so you can hope that they will in the future merge that stuff back, but there's no guarantee they will. Are we going to make it off this planet? And what I'm thinking about here is not uh, go to the moon a few times, walk around, leave some stuff behind and come back. I mean, are, are we going to make it as a species to the point where we become multi-planetary or whatever the phrase is, where we set up a colony on the moon or Mars that is self-sufficient, grows food and all the rest of it? Are we actually going to get there? Yes. I'm going to say No. I think we kill ourselves before we get there. I can't. What, how would we kill ourselves? What are we going to do? Like, I know we elect some utter fuckwits into leadership positions in countries around the world, but I don't think any single one of them is capable of destroying us all. No, the apocalypse is much more boring. We just keep raising the temperature of the planet until we can no longer grow crops and everybody starves to death. Hmm. Mass extinction and all that kind of fun stuff. No, I, I don't think we'll get there. I think we'll have the, I mean, we're starting to get the wake up call now. I think, I think we'll resolve those problems. Maybe not fast enough. But you live in a progressive country that does things like Brexit. <laughs> yeah, but don't forget there are multiple countries on this planet. And I think collectively we'll figure it out. I, I honestly do. There have been other major catastrophes in the planet's life and yeah we've got past some of those yeah arguable about whether this is worse or not you know i'm not not saying this is not bad but i think i think we'll get past that and i think technology will continue to develop and energy transfer from one form to another will get better and energy storage will get better and we'll get better at storing oxygen for long-term you know, flights and uh, you know, robotics will get better to be able to automate some of these tasks. I think, I think we'll just naturally evolve the skills and technology to be able to do it. And we will, I think, I think I genuinely think we will. I'm not convinced we'll do it within my lifetime, but soon. So you think that we will avoid all of the potential problems that will wipe us out. Things like the fact we've got thousands of nuclear weapons on a hair trigger at the moment. Are they really on a hair trigger? 
Are they? Is there someone really holding the key with their finger over the button, like right now, going, "Oh, will I? Will I? Will I? Am I going to do it? Am I going to do it?" No. There's checks and balances that lead up to someone, you know, typing in the code and pressing the button, and you know, whatever happening that launches those things. It's, I, I don't believe for one second we are on the brink of nuclear war. Not now, and not at any time since, like, the the Cold War in the 80s. Well, you are demonstrably wrong about that because there is one man at the moment in the US who makes the decision. Now, what you're trying to say to me is if he gave that order, then there'd be enough people who would have to actually twist keys, put in codes, etc., press buttons, that enough of them would stop it from actually happening. No, I'm saying I'm not I'm not convinced it would get to the point where he would give that order. If he was woken up in the middle of the night and they said to him, we are under attack, you've got 10 minutes before these missiles hit US cities, you've got to make the decision, do you fire back or not? And whether or not that's true or not, it, it doesn't matter. Sometimes these systems malfunction. And so in theory... He could have this false positive. And that has actually happened before. And they were just about to wake the president up when they realized that, no, actually, it, it is just a false alarm. But that could easily happen. Right. And thus, processes improve over time. And people realize, actually, we need to double check. We need to triple check. Let's get, you know, Putin on the hotline or let's speak to Kim Jong-un or whoever we think is launching these things. There are contingencies before you go and hand the guy a button and go, wake up, wake up, press this. I don't believe for one minute now in 2020, we're on a hair trigger. I don't, I don't accept that. I don't believe it. Right. Well, you're wrong, but let's just move on then. So <laughs> let, let's say that isn't an issue. You're saying that um, the climate catastrophe is not an issue because technology will solve it and we'll, we'll just... No, I didn't say it's not an issue. Yeah. Okay. That's wrong. But it's, it's not going to be the thing that wipes us out. You think that we'll get over it which I, I am inclined to agree with you. I think that it might wipe a lot of us out, but but I think ultimately that's not going to do it. I'm not being complacent. I'm not saying it's not a big issue and it's not a thing that could adversely affect a significant number of people on the planet, whether that's rising sea levels or changing climate so places are just too hot and then populations move in you know, northerly and southerly directions, compressing people and so they, these are all problems and mm. the amount of resources we have to keep all those people fed and all the animals fed that if they're going to continue eating animals yeah these are all problems they're all significant problems but i do believe that we get past these things yeah we have an america that is currently dying from a virus as they watch it all around them and do not believe it's real so as when the seas rise and take out all the coastal cities, and by the way, California is a massive agricultural exporter for the entire world and a lot of its coastline, uh, you know, it's, I don't share your optimism. I think Americans are way stupider than anybody could possibly have imagined. Well, I'm not going to argue with you on that. <laughs> <laughs> Unless like... People come together and say, hey, you know what? This is such a national security threat that we're going to invade the United States. Like, that's what it's going to take. 
it's insane how willfully ignorant Americans are. It's I, I never thought it was that bad. <laughs> I think you get that all over the world. I think there's a lot of ignorance uh, in many places. And I think that's been the case for many years, but it's more visible now. It's more obvious now because we have 24 hour live reporting and social media and uh, people holding high definition cameras in their pocket constantly. Uh, I think we're seeing and exposed to idiocy a lot more than we would have 50 years ago or a hundred years ago. It was still there, not in maybe so many, so high a volume. And the, and the other thing is the idiot begats the idiot. They, they all have access to this data, much of it wrong and feed off it. And so, yeah, I agree. There is, um, a problem with idiocy all around the world and people believing shit they read on the internet. Like just this week, the number one driver in Formula One tweets things about Bill Gates being trying to put microchips into people. It's just the people are fucking idiots. But I think we have a way to recover from that. I think, I don't think that human race goes constantly downhill i think we go up and down up and down and i think we're in a bit of a dip at the minute but we'll get back up again i'm very concerned that the united states has too much global power and we have people it's not random people that are that are saying this it's like people that are in charge of policy that that don't believe in basic science like i think that's the problem yeah it's worrying yeah well, don't worry about having too much global power. China's got you covered there. They'll soon be taking over, probably in our lifetime. So that's that sorted. What about viruses then? We've seen, obviously, with COVID and everything, but there could be something that is really, really fucking deadly and really virulent that wipes out a lot of people and really fucks things up. Yeah, and it, without wishing to sound callous, could be a bit of a reset that the human race needs to... <laughs> make us realize that we're overpopulated and we we share um, very small amounts of space between a large number of people and perhaps we want to rethink the way we live and the way we eat and the way we process food and the way we travel and the way that we interact. And I think that's a thing that comes out of disasters is new ways of doing things. All right, another one then. We suddenly get three months notice that a huge fucking comet is going to hit the planet and there's nothing we can do about it. Are all of your disasters based on Hollywood films from the 1990s? <laughs> yeah, the, the mid-90s generally, right. yeah. Yeah, we've had Outbreak. We've got, what's the one with... <laughs> Hunt for Red October. Yeah, Red October, yeah. <laughs> they're all featuring here quite heavily. Yeah, there, there's some disasters that there's pretty much nothing we can do, but I'm pretty sure our, most of our satellite tracking and by satellite i mean like you know rocks tracking things have told us what direction these things are traveling in and we had a close shave recently when something passed a few million miles from the earth um i think we know about that already we know the trajectory of all these things so mm, we often don't find out about them until a few months before wow i mean if it's a, an extinction level event then fuck it, we're all dead. Like, who gives a shit? Like, like are we going to make it off planet? Because 
player three entered the game and pressed the nuclear button or dropped a rock on us or did something catastrophic. Well, okay, that changes the rules slightly. All right, what about an alien invasion where they come and use our satellites against us and uh, kind of transmit this message that uh, is a timer that slowly counts down and then they attack the White House and... I'll just go and get an old PowerPC Mac off of eBay and hack them because that worked in the films and that seems to be all you're basing these scenarios on is shit films <laughs> from the 90s yeah there, there are some things that are completely out of our control but i think the process of government and the way we handle viruses are totally within our control as a species sure a rock landing from outside aliens arriving are somewhat out of our control however like unlikely they are but i, I honestly think humans are pretty good at getting over adversity even political fuckwits we can get over i guarantee we kill ourselves in the absolute most boring and preventable way possible (laughs) 